Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzanovskaya. And tonight's episode, we'll discuss competency-based time-variable medical education with Dr. Ben Kinnear. Before we get started on that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. We had a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Ben Kinnear, tonight, and we covered the topic of competency-based time-variable medical education. He talked us through his pilot program where he is evaluating this technique to really help learners complete their medical residency in a way that allows them to focus on what they need to learn and make sure that we are training doctors that are ready to practice in the future. Um, He talks through some of the challenges and also some of the opportunities that this technique allows. And Dr. Ben Kinnear is a MedPeds hospitalist in Cincinnati, Ohio, and is Associate Program Director for the MedPeds and Internal Medicine Residency Programs. In 2020, Ben was selected for the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation's Faculty Scholars Program, through which he is piloting competency-based time-variable training in the internal medicine residency through a program called Timeless. His interests include competency-based medical education, validity, argumentation, evidence-based learning, POCUS, and the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. Without further ado, let's get to it. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, We just wanted to start with some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Could you give us a one liner to describe yourself? Yeah, I am a a 39 year old husband and father of two daughters who's a MedPeds hospitalist in Cincinnati, Ohio. I love watching sports and Marvel movies and hiking. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fanatic and I am a lifelong Midwesterner and I bring all the overly polite baggage that comes with that. That's awesome. We need some more Midwestern uh, kind of power in the house. Um, Well, I guess, what is a book that you feel like, Ben, every physician uh, should read? Uh, So many popped into my head. I'll just mention a couple that I think have been mentioned on the Curbsider podcasts a lot. Uh, Grit by Dr. Angela Duckworth and Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. If you've not read those, you have to read them. But then one that's maybe a little more off the beaten path There's a book called The MVP Machine by Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sawchick, I think. And it's about how baseball has seen a shift in how they think about building a team away from just recruiting the most talented players to actually developing players beyond what they thought was possible. So it really does align with the idea of growth mindset. And I think there's a lot of parallels with medical education. There's been a long scramble for finding the quote unquote best applicants. And I think we're moving more toward uh, taking the people who we think we can do the best for and bringing out their best potential. So just a total frame shift in thinking. That's cool. I love those crossovers between you know, learning things from business literature or sports and trying to 
improve our practice of medicine. That's great. Do you have a favorite piece of advice that you like to give or that you've received? Yeah. So from a few different times in my life, y'all mentioned as a learner, as a teacher and such. As a learner, the best piece of advice I got, our medicine program director here, Dr. Eric Warm, when you come for orientation as a medicine resident, he does what he calls a half hour of truth. It's a series of advice that he's collected over the years from residents and faculty members. And uh, it's such a fantastic lecture. And one of the things that stuck out to me was there isn't such thing as a storm cloud. The later you stay, the later you stay. And by storm cloud, I think he means what a lot of us would call black clouds. He just changed the terminology. And, you know, I think when I was a resident, I would get angry really easily. I felt like things were happening to me if I got that late admission or it was just getting blown up on a busy clinical day. Uh, And this kind of thinking really reframed me to have more of an internal locus of control. There's actually literature out there on, is the black cloud phenomenon a real thing? It turns out it's not. The workload tends to distribute over time, even though you can have these weird idiosyncratic spikes. But people do stay later. People do work longer, you know, in a very person-dependent way. But it's not because the system's doing it to you. It's because that's how you choose to practice as a physician. And maybe that means you're a better physician. Maybe that means you need more efficiency. But that really opened my eyes to say, you know, I have a lot more agency in my experience, no matter what the system is doing to me, and totally reshaped how I approached really busy, busy, trying times. I think that reshaping is key. I used to reframe it for my friends as we were all just white clouds of learning. Um, and just to remember that when we were thinking about the storm cloud or the black cloud, that we're just we're just learning together. Um, I love your positivity here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just a little, little dose here and there. <laughs> I also love that someone managed to study whether or not black clouds exist in medicine. So, <laughs> Yeah, there's actually a few studies out there. They're really fun to read. Um, so I would just imagine sending that to your IRB and then <laughs> – and I'm sure the IRB is like, yes, this is an important question because we've all wondered the same thing. I feel like it's all about the way you spin it. I feel like an IRB would be like, yes, this sounds great. Let's talk about these clouds and weather. Um, <laughs> well, speaking about weather, I wonder kind of you're talking about the MVP machine and, and weathering storms. I wonder if you can share with us, Ben, your favorite failure and what you learned from it. Yeah, I have so many of them. I'm actually going to go outside of uh, medicine, just a personal failure because it's almost Halloween time. Halloween's my favorite season. My wife and I always spend a lot of time on our costumes. And a couple of years ago, I tried to, our family theme was we were going to be woodland mythical creatures. I tried to be a centaur and I used a bunch of PVC piping and harnesses and things to try to build myself a back half of a body to be a centaur, which was this beautiful costume for all of about 20 (laughs) minutes until... All the gluing and screws started to come apart. And eventually, about an hour into Halloween, I was just, it looked like I had like half of a dead horse hanging off of me, just dragging (laughs) along the ground, making this horrible grating sound. And it was annoying enough that my family actually wanted to trick or treat a fair distance away from me because. Oh, no. (laughs) uh, Yeah. So um, I guess there's really no lifelong lessons out of that other than, you know, sometimes things don't work out the way you want them. But uh, Halloween now is always a time where I wonder, is this. Is my costume going to be a, a high success or a colossal failure? What What's the plan this year? I can't tell you, but I will say the beard, the beard that I'm growing currently is part of it. Mm. <laughs> and could you tell us a little bit about the, um, the pilot that you're running right now? Yeah, we're doing something where we're piloting what's called competency-based time variable training. And to make that a little clearer, competency-based means that we make decisions about learners' progression based on the knowledge, skills, and attitudes that they've gained. 
rather than relying so heavily on time and training like we have in the past. And so obviously the time variable part means that you might progress a little faster or a little bit slower through a program based on how you perform. And we started this a year ago, last fall. And it is, we do get some funding through the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation to pilot this. And we're only doing it with a handful of internal medicine residents. So it's still a small pilot, but it has really been just an incredible learning experience on how approaching learning through the learner's needs and actually what they can do and what learning needs they have rather than just relying on time has really reshaped how we think about assessment and curricula and all different things. It's been fantastic. Cool. And of course, I will say we also, we have to have a a, a silly acronym. So we call it TIMELESS, uh, which stands for Transitions in Internal Medicine Education, Leveraging Entrustment Scales and Scores, because why not? Wow. Those words happen to just go together and timeless. That's incredible. Yeah, the first six months of the pilot was just finding the acronym. So <laughs> I'm surprised it only took six months. That's a, that's a pretty robust name. <laughs> um, and we're definitely excited to dive deeper into more about the competency-based time variable uh, trainings. But I think that's that's so exciting that you're actually putting it into practice and learning on the go and and seeing you know how how this can be effective and where we can take this in broader medicine. Yeah, it's what's interesting is I I think that. If if you all are like me, I'd I'd love to hear your opinion. Have you ever actually thought about who set the length of training and why we train for the amount of time that we do in medical school or residency? Um, it definitely seemed like fourth year medical school was kind of a time filler and probably the same for the second half of third year internal medicine residency. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of people share similar experiences. And if if I can I can I digress and tell you how we got to that yeah. point? So what happened was if you, and I promise this won't be a, an old man uh, rambling story too much, but we, medical education in the United States back in like the 1800s, way back when, people would just follow barber surgeons around and Lance Boyles, or they would go to these apprentice models. And that's how you'd become doctors. And people started to recognize there was a lot of heterogeneity in how good a physician was because there wasn't any kind of standard training. And and as people started to notice that and started to notice what other countries were doing, specifically over in Europe, they said, well, this isn't good. And so early in the 1900s, some standards got passed about what medical training should look like. And that's really where the, the common framework we're used to in medical school of two years of preclinical, two years of clinical came from. So it was kind of just made up and borrowed from Europe. And then I'm sure you and your learners may have heard of the Flexner Report, which was that big survey in 1910 that tried to hold all these medical schools to that standard. And from that point on, the focus was on standardizing curriculum because before that, there was no standardization. It was better than following barber surgeons around. So there, w- there was never like a big landmark trial or a really grounded empirical reason why we trained for four years in medical school or why an internal medicine residency is three years or any of that stuff. Um, it just kind of evolved organically and was this agreed upon accepted approach. And so it's not an evidence-based way of training. And competency-based medical education is is leading people to question, do we need to stick with that model or is there something better? I think that's a great framing for kind of jumping into our case to dive deeper into that question. So we'll we'll have a case from Cashlock just to get us thinking more deeply about this topic. Um, Melissa is a first-year resident in internal medicine who's interested in going into pulmonary critical care. Before going to med school, she worked as a critical care nurse for seven years. Her bedside manner is aspirational, and she seamlessly integrates basic science knowledge into her clinical care. She reliably meets competencies early in her intern year. 
We also have Matt, who's a first-year medical resident who has excellent test scores, but sometimes has struggled to translate basic science knowledge into application in clinic or in the hospital. Matt's been improving, but needs significant supervision and support to complete his clinical duties. His evaluations show him not yet meeting intern year competencies. You, your program director, wonder if the three-year training program with swift transitions and autonomy will prepare both of these learners to be the best doctors to serve our communities. So I think we you already gave us a nice definition of what competency-based medical education and what time-variable competency-based medical education is. I guess we could kind of take that to the next step of how do we create these competencies and, and where are these coming from? Is expert opinion sufficient to be able to decide kind of where these competencies need to fall? And you kind of mentioned that the original method is not uh, based on any kind of science and sort of was just made up. Are, are these competencies just made up or where are we going with this? Um, yeah, great question. I, I think at the core of competency-based medical education, the idea is to meet the needs of our patients and our healthcare systems. And so uh, these competencies should be coming from whatever those needs are. The idea is you start at the end, you you say, what do our patients need? What skills, what knowledge, skills, and attitudes do our learners need to have to provide good patient care? Then you define those competencies, and then you build the assessment systems and the curriculum based on those competencies. So it really should be coming from our, our stakeholders, those we serve. Now, how do we actually get competencies written down, like what the ACGME does or the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada? Um, usually these organizations will try to engage these stakeholders to come together in some sort of consensus process to write down what competencies are needed for our graduates in order for them to go on and provide good care. Now, it's a messy process. It's not perfect. And consensus always leaves out somebody's ideas. But, you know, I will say I don't work for the ACGME, but I, I did get to participate in the Milestones 2.0 revisions. And for, for listeners who don't know, the Milestones are a framework that the ACGME uses with residency programs to try to help implement CBME. And they just went through a revision, just went live this year. And I got to be part of the revision process for the Milestones 2.0. And they had chief residents at the table. They had program directors from all over the country. They had learners. They had, I don't remember if they had engaged patients or not. But the idea was that there wasn't just a group of med ed elites in a room writing down competencies. There were experts, but they tried to reach out to the stakeholders and say, you tell us what competencies are needed to meet the needs of our patients and meet the needs of society. And then that's what we'll work backwards from. So I think as long as you're doing your best to keep the end user in mind and whatever they need to meet their needs, I think you're you're doing as best as you can. Ben, just to take a quick uh, tangent slash digression, that sounds like an amazing meeting and uh, developing the Milestones 2.0 and, or I should say revisions. I wonder, did you ever have this moment where you were like, but can we make it CBME TV? You know, can we, how do we add in that time variable component that you just kind of defined for us? Yeah, great, um, great question. I, I find that I get really excited about this topic quickly. Um, and so I try to pick my spots when I, when I'm going to get on that soapbox. I have found with our timeless program, we have engaged the ACGME and a lot of the leadership there has been incredibly supportive of this type of innovation. So I don't think there would actually be a lot of people in that room who would say, no, time variable training doesn't make sense. I think we would quickly end up in the realm where we, where I get to with a lot of people, which is how do you do it? Because there are a lot of logistical challenges and, uh, and those are where the pilots come into place where you can learn a lot. But yeah, I, 
<laughs> I probably should have just got up and started uh, started pounding the table about time variable training there, and everybody would have been like, "Who invited this guy from Cincinnati?" <laughs> they probably well, now you have your platform here. Yeah. So we're <laughs> Are you listening, ACGME? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. No, they, they've they've be- been really great. They've been there are a lot of really brilliant people there, like uh, Dr. Bill Yopst and Dr. Eric Holmbo, who have been incredible mentors and been very supportive, not just of our pilot but of other pilots, to try to figure out what are the what are different ways we might train physicians? Because again, I think their their North Star is serving patients and serving the public. And if this is a better way, they want to investigate it. So the, the trick is just doing it small first while we while we work out the bugs and, and learn how to do it. I wonder, Ben, if you can just um, kind of entertain this idea for a second. And you can definitely kibosh it if it doesn't feel um, appropriate. But if I was a person at that meeting from the ACGME, um, also this 2.0 revision, how would you get on your soapbox and just like give your elevator pitch for the time variable component? Like if you could just like say it and, you know, really um, galvanize and engage ACGME, what would you say? Like, I'm not asking for a role play, but you know, if you decided to role play, <laughs> I would love to I'd love to hear what that would be like. Um, that's a great question. I think I would say, well, can, do you want to give you the, the pitch that I often make? There's a specific study sure. that I often point to when I, when I get on one of my rants. And it goes a little something like this. I, if I were at the ACGME meeting, I would say, this is a really great f- framework. I think milestones are a step in the right direction. They're not perfect, but they're a step in the right direction to try to implement competency-based assessment. But implementing this framework only goes so far. And until we build flexibility into our training, we're still going to be graduating people perhaps that we shouldn't. And we're also going to be holding people back in terms of letting them explore areas of training that they might most benefit from because they are locked into a rigid training system. And then I would point to a study that came out last year. The lead author was Yonker, J-O-N-K-E-R, um, forgive me, I don't remember what journal it was in, but it was just preliminary data from a qualitative study where they surveyed leaders in anesthesia programs from across Europe. I want to say it was something like 23 or 25 people and asked them a simple question. Would you trust every person you've graduated to care for a loved one? It's a pretty profound question. And I think we all ask ourselves these kinds of questions in clinical care. Like, what would you do if this was your mom and, and those kind of things? Kind of a similar question. And a good chunk of the people replied, no, or I don't know, which really infuriated me, but didn't surprise me. Because as somebody who's been in APD and, and been part of a lot of these discussions, I've probably seen people graduate from our programs that I don't know if I would trust them to take care for my family member. Now, and I don't mean wouldn't prefer they care for my family member. I mean, wouldn't trust them to care for my family member. And I think I, I actually followed up this paper with a Twitter post asking the same question. And over like, 50% of people said the same thing. No, yes, I've graduated people I would not trust to to care for my family member. And so the question then is why? And there's a lot of reasons behind it, I think. But one of them is a time-based system creates a lot of pressure to move people through when maybe you don't think they're ready because you know it's going to really cause a lot of problems for that learner. It's going to knock them off their, their track, quote unquote, for a fellowship or for a job. Um, it's going to potentially stigmatize them in some way. Uh, and frankly, if they disagree with you, they can sue the program and that's a headache for the program. So <laughs> having time-based training, I think is bad both for people who need more time and for people who probably could use their time in a better way than continuing with the same rigid track. And that study was just one really stark example 
of how I think it manifests. It manifests as us putting people out to serve the public who we would not let serve our loved ones, which I think is inexcusable. That was a great mic drop. I I definitely <laughs> would vote for you. If yeah, there was and then I would I would flip a table for sure um, and storm out of the room. I think you have to storm out of the room because I think otherwise it's just yeah, you awkward. Got, you got to make your point. Yeah, yeah. you can't. You, you can't, just sit you down, can't flip a like... table and then sit down and be like, "It's good coffee, huh?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Weather outside, <laughs> so nice. <laughs> no, but I, I think that really does drive it home. That and I I can think of examples you know that I have seen in my training, but you know it's there there really aren't options because I maybe I'm wrong in this, but my understanding is the residency only has so many spots, and so if we keep someone longer. We don't get a new intern, and then that sort of messes up the whole system. Is that true? Uh, it's not exactly that straightforward. There's okay. a whole cap system with how many spots each program is allowed and has money for, and you can apply to change the cap or go over the cap. And there are many programs that are already over their cap for one reason okay. or another. But you know, I, I do think eventually, um, if we ever move toward competency-based time variable training in a wider, broader scope, things like funding, how how graduate medical education or undergraduate medical education is funded will be things that have to be looked at because our funding systems are very much based on time-based models. Um, but I, I think the greatest risk, frankly, comes to the learner. Um, you know, if somebody needs a little more time, they see that as a very high-risk moment. Uh, many, many residents do, uh, medical students do. And I don't blame them for seeing it that way because if you have a fellowship in mind or if you have a job in mind or you're worried that that's going to go on your record, rather than just saying, this person needed a little more time, but we got them there. That's the most important thing. It becomes this this thing to be to be worried about. And, and of course, that leads to behaviors like hiding your deficiencies and not being curious and just trying to perform, which is all maladaptive if you're trying to create you know, master adaptive learners who really want to challenge and push themselves. So it, all of this stuff connects together um, and it all creates a lot of risk. Now, I'm not saying that all of those things would go away just by going time variable. That's not true. There are a lot of other things in medical education that incentivize bad things, but I think that's one piece of it. And I wonder, you've mentioned this a couple of times, as did, it sounds like, Yonker in their study, but um, the kind of the role of trust in all of this and how you develop trust in a learner? How do you, how do you assess that? Kind of um, maybe you could speak to a little bit about um, the role of trust in competency-based time variable education. Yeah. So trust has really gotten a lot of attention, especially in the last 10 years. There's a researcher from the Netherlands named Dr. Ale Tenkata who really has been one of the torchbearers for using trust and entrustment. And some of your listeners may have heard of EPAs, which stand for Entrustable Professional Activities. Um, this is just another way of thinking about how can we implement competency-based medical education and competency-based assessment. And the reason why people are interested in using trust and entrustment is because it aligns pretty well with what we already do as clinicians. If you think about it, if you're ever working on a team and you're supervising someone, um, you're already making decisions. How closely do I need to watch this person to go call that consult or put in that central line or do this appendectomy? And so it aligns really well with how our brains already work. But also a lot of people point to the fact that entrustment explicitly brings patient care into assessment because competencies, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, um, but competencies are really about attributes of the learner. What is your medical knowledge? What is your communication? Those kind of things. 
EPAs and entrustment is about you doing the work of patient care. And so it brings patients explicitly into your assessment and into your mental model, which I think aligns really well with, um, you know, competency-based medical education. Now, that does not mean that things like competencies and milestones are at odds with entrustment. They're not. And in fact, a lot of people weave them together in their assessment systems. Um, but it, it does it does create a really nice model for trying to understand how much supervision someone needs, which really is an important thing when you're talking about promotion decisions and, and training. Um, in our timeless pilot, because this really aligned with our thinking, we actually use internal medicine EPAs to guide our uh, promotion decisions in the time variable format. So we still assess, we still have the milestones, we still use those, but when it comes to making the promotion decisions, we actually lean really heavily into entrustment decisions. And how do you train educators and faculty to be able to give that important feedback and be able to uh, sort of comment and document that that progress? Or are you putting more of it on the learner to be able to sort of make a portfolio to show that they've been able to do this? Yeah. In an ideal world, I would love for the learners to take full uh, full ownership of that. But I don't think that that's uh, likely, at least not here in Cincinnati. And I don't think that that's maybe even fair, given all the other demands that a resident has on their time. Although I know there are other places that do put all the onus or most of the onus on the learner to seek that out. And I think that's probably has some good uh, good side effects. We, we, so we do some rater training on the frontline assessment, uh, people who do frontline assessments on how to use our entrustment scales and things like that. Where we do a lot of faculty development uh, or more faculty development is in our clinical competency committee, which is the group of people who look at all of the assessment data on the back end and try to make decisions about readiness for progression and things like that. You know, I think a lot of this gets to, and again, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but what do you think assessment is? Do you think assessment is measuring a truth about a learner? Or do you think assessment is socially constructing a decision about what you think a learner can and cannot do? And there's, there's two very different things. If you think you're trying to measure some objective truth about a learner, then you're going to really do a lot of training on inter-rater reliability and, you know, do we all see the exact same thing when we watch a learner? Um, I don't have that worldview of assessment. And I think a lot of people in medical education are moving away from that worldview. That's what we would... That, the term for that would be, we would call that positivist or post-positivist thinking. I think I'm more of what you would call a constructivist, which is, I think we have socially constructed ideas about, about a learner's competence and what competence is and, and trust and all those things. And so we don't do a lot of rater training to try to make sure that we all have the exact same score for the same resident. We try to embrace the contextual nature of assessments that people get. And we try to embrace the different backgrounds and ideas that people bring to that final decision that we make in the competency committee. That may be well beyond what you wanted to get into, but um, you know the philosophies that underpin how you do all this, I think, really influence how you're going to do things like rater training and how your assessment system is going to run. And I do think that it's that's a challenging discussion to have at times of, you know, talking about philosophies of science doesn't exactly get people super excited most of the time. Although it sounds like you're excited. <laughs> I am a very, very boring human. So yes, I get excited about very <laughs> No, we, we like nerdiness around here. So that is all, all good. <laughs> I agree. I feel like your um, clinical competency committee meetings, Ben, are probably high, high energy uh, level. Well, interestingly, for, for Timeless, I do not participate in them because since I am helping to steer the ship on Timeless, I don't want people to feel pressured that – I don't want people to say – 
oh, you know, this is Ben's, uh, Ben's important project. He really cares about this. So I'm going to promote people early just to make him happy. So I actually don't participate. I don't want to, I observe them uh, and I take notes, but I don't lead any of the conversation. I don't do any of that. So in t- inside, it, there's a whirling dervish of activity, uh, but I try not to let it out during the committee meetings. That's amazing. And sounds like it's still early in your pilot, but do you have a, a theoretical feeling that it is going to take shorter than three years for an internal medicine training or are we've you trying al- not to make predictions ahead of time? No, we've already, we've already had uh, multiple people promoted early, both from the intern to senior and senior to unsupervised practice level. Now, we are not graduating people early because that's not allowed by the boards yet. But in theory, if we had the ability to, we would have graduated people um, multiple months early. Um, not everybody. So I think that kind of lends itself some credence that, you know, we're not just trying to fly people through the program. But one thing, one thing I want to emphasize though, is time variable training is even though people focus on moving people through quickly and getting people done early, it's really about flexibility in training, which is hard to do in a system where people have schedules that are built a year out and if you move one person from one place, you have to plug another person in for them. But um, but yeah, we have found that on the education side of things, in terms of making those decisions about when somebody can be promoted early, we think we have had a lot of successes and have a process that works and is very defensible. It's on the operational side of things that we're still really trying to figure things out. Yeah, I can imagine that being a big challenge with so much of the work in the hospital is done by low paid residents and ha- how do you kind of, if, if someone is sort of competent in the wards and don't necessarily need more time there, but maybe need more time in the outpatient setting, how do you fill in that spot on the inpatient side? Yeah, right now we, we don't always, we can't always do it. So we have some flexibility that we've been able to find, but one of our guiding principles for this pilot is do no harm, not only to patients, but also to learners. And that includes learners outside the pilot. So we, mm-hmm. we will not, you know, for example, if a resident doesn't need to do that ICU intern month anymore, we will not pull them out only to force somebody to take their shift because we think that's unfair. So we do a lot of asking once somebody's ready for promotion. It triggers a question where we all sit down together. We look at a schedule. We ask the learner, here's what you have left for this academic year. Here are certain things that are required by the ACGME we can't touch. But the things that aren't required, maybe you've got an extra ICU month or an extra wards month or whatever, if you had ideal flexibility, what would you do at that time? And then we try to find to see if anybody would like to take those shifts and we try to build flexibility into their schedule. We also, you know, if you're an intern and you're promoted to a senior early, you start taking on senior roles earlier than, you know, month 13 of your residency training. So there, we try to build in flexibility. We try to promote people to the level of supervision that we think they need. Uh, But that's one of the learnings is it's in a time-based system it is not perfectly flexible. And so right now we're trying to work around a system that's not built for this. We're fine. We're getting better at it, but it's still, it's still not perfect. That's a really nice transition, Ben, because I was going to ask how the learner is involved in this, both the timeless pilot and in an ideal world, competency-based time variable education. And it sounds like what I'm hearing is that the flexibility piece is where the learner really kind of um, takes an active role to say, hey, you may not need XYZ requirement. Uh, what would you like to do instead? But I wonder, are there other ways that the learner's experience is taken into account or kind of really um, the educators and leaders are partnering with the learners to think about how their education will look? 
Yeah, we, we've tried to be um, as transparent with the current pilot residents, residents as possible. Uh, we try to co-produce everything with them. So I think they get the current pilot residents are probably tired of my emails. And we, we usually sit down for dinner uh, every few months to talk about how things are going. And I don't even really make any changes in the competency committee process without talking to them first, even though they're not in those meetings. So I, I really think that to do this, it has to be a co-production between the learners and the system, especially because we don't know what best practices are. We're kind of learning together. But I do think if if we really want to develop our learners into people who are curious and who seek out challenges and try to try to reflect and fill their own skill gaps and knowledge gaps, I think they have to be part of the planning process for what their what their um, curriculum is going to look like. And so, you know, I'm all for a accreditation saying, you know, these are the minimum things you need to do in terms of rotations and things like that. But there's a lot beyond that, there's a lot of flexibility that could be out there if our institutions did not rely on residents to keep the ship running, you know? And so <laughs> I guess that's the question is, do we think it's okay that institutions rely on underpaid, overworked residents to keep things moving? I don't think it's okay. I think we've got a lot of normalized deviance where we all think it's okay because that's what we all did. But yeah, I think that's going to be a major barrier. And I think, I think you, you run the risk. We and you know this is one of the things we're watching out for, of telling residents, hey, we're trying to give you this awesome, flexible, competency-based approach, and then there's no flexibility. Um, and are they going to get angry about that? So, you know, I think we're okay right now because it's a pilot. But if if we decide we wanted to scale this up or, or make it a more common thing in our residency program, we're going to have to rethink how we do our whole scheduling process and, and how we interface with the healthcare system. Yeah. And, and how have you thought about how that would look if, if it is broadly rolled out, you know, would match happen at different times and would, you know, fellowships start at different times? How, how would that actually look? Yeah. If it were, if it were more broadly done, it would have to be something like that. And I'm not an expert in their healthcare system, but I believe the Netherlands actually has a much more flexible system that's kind of like that, where they have rolling admission. You know, we don't have the the dreaded July effect, <laughs> which, you know, it's questionable whether that's really a thing or not. But, you know, you have people entering the system and exiting the system at different time points. And you have a lot more flexibility about, do I want to be a full-time resident or do I want to be a 0.8 FTE resident? Um, that's an actual thing. Because God forbid, if you want to have a family or pursue other interests uh, in your time. So I think right now people are really focusing on the educational side of things. How do we make defensible decisions about when a learner is ready? How do we provide them that feedback? What frameworks are best to use? All those kind of things. But as there's more and more competency-based time variable pilots popping up, people are starting to bump into these administrative things. And eventually, if there is ever a broader movement to move toward this, we will have to think about the match. Uh, we'll have to think about time-based accrediting and certification standards. We'll have to think about time-based payment models, all these things. I don't think we're there yet, but I think people are starting to build coalitions around this to say, we need to advocate together to start having these discussions beyond just our single institutions. I wonder, Ben, you mentioned the barriers of the institution, of the way that we finance the healthcare system and finance um, 
one might even say the training to be part of the healthcare system. Are there other models that we can look at for either countries, you mentioned the Netherlands, maybe other pilots or other places where people have embraced competency-based time variable, time variable education that we can kind of learn from or adapt to? That's a, that's a really great question. I don't know of any offhand. I do think it would be interesting to look outside of healthcare though. You know, I mean, uh, there's got to be other other ways to do it. But once you start getting into finances and policy, larger healthcare policy, you are well beyond my level of expertise. And in fact, that's been one interesting thing with this pilot. I quickly found myself at the table with billers and coders and associate CMOs and people who represent Ohio Medicare and Medicaid. And you know, this I'm an I'm a simple educator. I'm not a policy wonk. So. Uh, you know, I think it's on us in education to, sh- to show the educational merits, both theoretical and practical, and then engage those policy gurus to say, how could we actually make this happen? And I got to believe, if you think about it, if you graduate, and I'm just throwing this out there as an example, if you find even 25% of learners could graduate early, six months early, imagine the, the money that could be saved there. And then the question goes, how would you reinvest that money? Could it be reinvested in a way that could promote flexibility within training programs? Um, I don't know. I actually don't know how money works, but I got to think that there's creative ways we could go about doing this. I kind of wonder, like your example of you looking outside of medicine, I think is really um, well taken because I kind of wonder in graduate school, there's probably a 0.8 FTE graduate student that's on their own way and on their own path to figuring out kind of who knows, their master's, their PhD, but I almost wonder if we look to other professions, graduate professions, graduate training, if there's uh, examples there. Yeah, we absolutely should. There's a there's a great book called The Medici Effect that is all about how different disciplines uh, can intentionally cross and learn from one another. I think we need a little bit of that uh, in this pilot. And I think, I mean, fast tracking is kind of an example of time variable I mean, it's it's a rigid example, but um, I think that's you know one move that is starting to be more common um, to give people that that flexibility of skipping their final year of internal medicine and going on to fellowship. Yeah, the ge- the general concept is there's a lot of examples of it. There's the fa- there you know three year medical schools for example. There's a huge consortium called the Camp Consortium that exists. There's uh, physician scientist programs where you go do two years of internal medicine, then you finish residency and go do research. There are mutant med-peds people like me. I only did two years of internal medicine and two years of peds, and yet I am dual board certified. And then there was this really interesting thing that happened with the COVID pandemic. Did you all hear about this? Where there were medical schools across the world that released students early Mm. because they said, you know, we think you're good enough. Go join the workforce. Uh, and help with the pandemic before you go into your next stage of training. So the question is, if they were good enough to go, why were we holding them there? And, you know, there are other things beyond just, are you absolutely ready to go that we need to consider? There's there's this whole thing called professional identity formation, which is about the, becoming a physician, like developing that identity. And it goes beyond just competency. And I think we need to think about those things as well. But it still begs the question, if we could have been saying, oh, it's March, you're ready to go. Why are we not doing that? And I think it's because our systems aren't built to do it. I think it's just way out of the norm. And I think a lot of people don't have assessment systems that are up to the task to make those decisions yet, unless it's a time of crisis. So, Mm -hmm. but it certainly was a proof of concept to say, 
we could be doing this. Um, and it, it actually woke up a lot of people who are interested in this space to speak out and say, see, we can do it. It works. Yeah. I almost feel like that should be the second half of your soapbox speech. Like when you go talk to the ACGME, it's kind of like the what you mentioned earlier as your elevator pitch. But plus, like we already did it. Like look at 2020 in the spring and we have our proof there that this can happen and this can work. I like it. So so I, I, I do my speech. I flip the table. I walk out of the room. <laughs> then I walk back into the room. I run my hand through my hair and I go, y'all, we already did it with COVID-19 and I get a serious somber tone and then it kind of plays on the emotional levels. I think, I think we could script this whole thing out. (laughs) Although again, you know, like I said, actually the ACGME, I don't think is, is where I need to make this elevator pitch. Um, I think they are, they are open to innovation. Who do you think would need to hear the elevator pitch then? Oh, I think there are a lot of institutions that would need to hear this elevator pitch. I think there are a lot of uh, board organizations that are not ready to move away from time-based credentialing yet. There are some. American Board of Pediatrics is willing to do so. There's a large consortium, not large, there's four institution consortium called EPAC, where the board is allowing them to do, the American Board of Pediatrics is allowing them to do time variable training. I believe it's pathology is another one, but there are a lot of boards that are still um, on the fence at best or uh, resistant uh, at worst. and so. You know, the question is, uh, how do we get to what their concerns are and address their concerns? And I and I, I understand, right? They have a they have a duty. The boards have a duty to protect the public, to make sure that we are putting people out who are ready to serve the public in a safe way. My response to that would be, again, the Yonker paper. We are already putting people out to the public that are not <laughs> that we don't think are fully safe to care for patients. And if I were a patient. And I knew that I would be furious. I also wonder if there's a group of learners out there that could say something along the lines of, well, you know, we have this community of interns and now there's people who are leaving our community and kind of progressing ahead of time and our cohort is changing. And I I wonder your thoughts, Ben, about kind of the impact, honestly, on the camaraderie, the peer support and just the community that gets built because I don't know about y'all, but when I think back on residency, the people were the some of the biggest parts of my experience. In fact, probably why I survived residency. And so I just wonder, kind of, your thoughts about that. Yeah, such an important question. And actually, I don't have the answer. But you know, for example, here in 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 our internal medicine residency program, from day one, we teach them about growth mindset. And having a growth mindset and focusing on growth, don't compare yourself to others. It's not about the grade. The question is, if you suddenly tie very real incentives to assessments, is that a negative, does that have a negative impact on growth mindset? Does that push people toward a fixed mindset and make them competitive or create a sense of othering if somebody progresses ahead? We don't know the answer to to those things. At least I don't know the answer to those things. I haven't read about it in any of the time variable training literature yet, but there's not a ton of it out there. And so with Timeless, that's one of the things we really are are wondering. And so we are doing longitudinal qualitative interviews with our residents and asking them a lot of these questions. How is this affecting your learning? How is this affecting how you how you seek feedback? How is this affecting how you relate to your colleagues? Do you feel singled out? Do you feel different? And so we're trying to learn that over time. It's just a small cohort of residents. So whatever we find is certainly not the truth, but I think it will inform a lot of what we do going forward. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why 
we actually, in our pilot, in our timeless pilot, we are not telling people who the timeless residents are. So that's part, you know, I love Twitter. I haven't tweeted about them. I haven't tweeted their faces or their names. I don't tell other faculty members because I don't know yet if a resident will find it risky for others to know that they are on a time variable track and people making judgments about whether they've pro- progressed or not. So um, so they, they are free to tell people if they want to, but we don't because we don't have the answer to this question yet. And it's an important one. We don't want to cause harm. And they opted in once they had already matched with residency or it was sort of part of the, I don't know, when they chose to join your your institution, was it to join Timeless? No. we Well, when we started last year, we had already gotten our class in and we sent out applications and let people apply. Um, this year, once I think we have like a YouTube video about it up, but it's not a big selling point for the program. And we're very explicit with the fact that if you decide you want to come here, we cannot guarantee you a spot in this pilot because it's a small pilot. And so we had after match day, we reached out and asked who might be interested in applying, kind of got a sense of who who might be interested. And then once people got here, we did some more informational sessions and then let people apply. So it's it's not anything that we try to use to entice people to come to the program because it's it's so few residents. And then it is a voluntary application thing. We don't we don't push people through if they don't want to. And how do you think about the impact of uh, CBME on bias? I mean, I could could see that, you know, because it is very dependent on external raters and um, faculty to decide who's progressing at what rate, that potentially that could bias against certain groups of people. Um, but I also could see that giving learners the flexibility to, for example, be a 0.8 FTE um, could really open up opportunities, say, for people with disabilities or or other situations. Um, how have you thought about that? This this is maybe the most important question, I think. You know, when I, when I talk about time variable training, I say there's three big barriers. There's a lot of barriers, but there's three big ones. One is, how do you make defensible decisions, which we've kind of already talked about. The second one is, how do you practically make it happen when there's no flexibility in the schedule? We've kind of talked about that. The third one is, how do you address bias in assessment? And there are a few different types of bias. So let me clarify. There is cognitive bias, like leniency bias, halo effect, things that we know happen with any kind of rater. I'm actually less concerned with that because, again, depending on your worldview on assessment, that's either meaningfully idiosyncratic to the assessor or it's rater error. And I actually don't think it's rater error. But the more concerning type of bias to me is systemic biases like racial bias or gender bias or even personality bias. Like, you know, if you're an introverted, quiet person on a um, ward team, are you going to be seen as aloof and disengaged just because you're quiet? So these are things where I think can systematically disadvantage someone. And that becomes a real problem because we already know bias exists in medicine. That There's tons of literature out there that shows it. And it's already causing harm. The question is, will making things time variable exacerbate that harm by tying increased consequences to those decisions? We don't know yet. One of the things I'm hopeful for is that moving toward a time variable system will serve as a burning platform to more rapidly address these issues. Because right now, there's a lot out there on studying if bias exists or not. And we we know it does, both in the, the language people use when assessing somebody and in the quantitative ratings that they give. We know it's there. Um, so the question then is, how do we mitigate it? And 
in our own experiences with timeless, uh, as soon as you put the consequences of time variable training to something, it really has sparked a lot of innovation that otherwise would have happened much more slowly because people suddenly see the, the stakes that are tied to it. So I'm hopeful that moving in this direction will tie, will lead to more change. Now, there are already a few things people are doing. One, you can do raider training, like trying to de-bias people. Now, I, I'm sure you've done some implicit bias training and those kind of things. Those are necessary, but not sufficient. From what I've read, um, the, the evidence that it works is mixed at best. It certainly doesn't fix it because you can never totally de-bias someone. The second one is to account for bias on the back end of assessment data. You know, we use some regression modeling in our quantitative data, in our entrustment numbers, to account for a lot of contextual factors like who your assessor is, what rotation you're on, what time of year, all these different things. We call it our expected score. We put it on this dashboard with all these analytics. Um, you could imagine doing the same thing with gender and other things that could lead to bias like uh, race and things like that to try to see that bias somehow and account for it that dis disadvantage someone in a systematic way. I don't, we aren't doing that yet, but you could imagine something like that. The third way is to try to assess people without using human judgment. And there are certain people who are looking into using clinical care measures, for example, in assessment. In other words, could you be assessed in part based on the patient outcomes of the people you serve? Now that's fraught with a lot of problems too, in terms of can you attribute care to a resident and things like that? But there are a lot of people working in that space and getting closer and closer to it. Um, and I think I think that's actually a really interesting way to go. The thing we have to be careful about is not to presume that clinical care measures are free of bias, because I think a lot for a long time, people thought standardized tests were free of bias as well. And what we've learned is standardized tests are not free of bias. That's one of the biggest problems with step one. It's systematically biased against those who are underrepresented in medicine. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. There are different ways to come at bias, and it's something that we most definitely have to better understand and find better ways to mitigate. I actually am hopeful that moving toward time variable training will spur innovation and create urgency um, and not let us be complacent. Because right now, I think a lot of people don't see many stakes tied to in-training assessment. And uh, so I think we're, you know, we're doing a lot of, yeah, it exists, but I haven't seen a lot of great solutions put forward yet. We've had did such I, a, did I just kill the conversation? I'm so sorry. <laughs> what is that? I felt like I just killed the conversation. I didn't. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it was just like a. It was another mic drop. So we were Molly and I were doing our internal <laughs> processing. Go for it, Molly. Oh, I was. I mean, this. Yeah, I, I think all of your answers have just kind of made me think even more deeply about how complex this all is and just how many layers there are to to really thinking about this and putting this into practice. Are there things that have kind of surprised you the most in working in Timeless? Um, I have been surprised by the local support. We have had an incredible amount of support from our GME office, from our clinical ops people, from our associate CMO, from our program leaders. Um, that was, I was really concerned that we could run into a lot of political headwinds because I know some other pilots that have, um, that has been, that has been great to see. And I think it's because you have, to, it's all about the story you tell. And so if you tell a story that resonates with people, they'll kind of get where you're coming from. I have been surprised at how making time variable decisions in our clinical competency committee really seems to have made our decision-making process much more deliberate. Um, I don't know if either of you have ever served on a clinical competency committee, but 
my experience, and this this is in the literature a bit as well, is that they tend to make passive decisions because you know there's a time-based transition point um, that is the consequential transition point. And unless there are major red flags, um, or I don't want to say red flags like it's a bad way, unless somebody is really needing a lot of help, you presume there is a transition. There's not a deliberate decision to say this person is ready. It's They must be ready unless they prove they're not ready. Now, with a time-based approach, every single time we evaluate these learners, we are being extremely deliberate to say, is this person ready? And is there proof that they're ready? And I will say, one of the people that I interviewed, because we're also interviewing our CCC members, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch the quote, but I loved this quote. It was something like, when somebody needs to remediate, the data slap us in the face. Like It's kind of hard to ignore. There's usually a bunch there. When we're trying to make decisions about promotion, we are scouring the data and, and like searching and, and being very deliberate. So one is this passive, the data has to come find me. And the other one is we are really engaged in this process and trying to find meaning. And I think that's how every decision should be. But our, our CCC didn't really do that until we were pushed because of the time variable nature of what we're doing. That has been a really interesting change to see. I would imagine that would lead to the learners getting better feedback to be able to move forward and to, you know, I, I think it sounds like you're creating a culture where they're aware of what they need to work on, but actually having that directive kind of evaluation is probably very helpful. We'll see. We're asking them. Yeah. You know, we ask them, <laughs> is this helpful? And then we ask, how can we do better? And, you know, we've already made several changes as we go. So it's it's totally been an iterative uh, iterative process. And I also, I would, the last thing I would say too, I am not claiming that what we are doing is the right way. I don't think there is a right way to try to do this. I think as we're piloting this and as if other people decide to pilot this, the more people who try different ways, the better, because there there probably isn't one a one size fits all approach. And so seeing people take different approaches, yeah, we use EPAs and we use these learning analytics and such. Another program might use nothing but narrative comments and and use the ACGME milestones. You know, like I think letting people try different ways and then seeing what the benefits and the drawbacks of each approach are is the best way. So, um, so we are trying to iterate as we go and we are trying to be flexible and, and then transparent. We're, you know, we've already started writing some papers so we can share what we've learned, but I think we have a long way to go and more data to collect before we actually finish those. I love that, Ben. I also really, as a former member of a CCC during my chief year, I remember eyes wide open being like, what is happening? And it was a very passive experience, I think. And everything that you've mentioned about just how deliberate you are about this process, I think is, it's an, I think it would be inspiring for all CCCs out there. And also to think about, well, how do we kind of integrate all these various streams of data? How do we analyze the biases in all of these streams of data? And just having people really kind of be deliberate about it, because I'm not sure how often that happens. Yeah, that's true. And I also would say, you know, going back to the bias part, I, w- I want to be reflexive about the fact people on the podcast can't see me. I am a middle-aged white male. My opinion on bias, whether it's gender bias or racial bias, probably is not the most important opinion. So I also think that people who probably have more important voices to hear than mine should be part of this conversation. And, uh, you know, hopefully people who are innovating in this space are inviting those voices to the table. How do you see this impacting lifelong learning um, in health professions? Hopefully, it would really uh, drive people to be self-directed and curious. I mean, can you imagine if you were in residency and somebody said, okay, Molly, you know, you've got some flexibility now because you've reached a point where 
We think um, you've really mastered a lot of our curriculum. What do you think you need to work on? And and you could cynically say somebody would take a bunch of really easy electives or time off, and maybe they need that. Maybe that's a good thing. But imagine if you could actually really stop and say, what do I need to work on? And you had the flexibility to explore those things. Because once you're in practice, that's really all you got. There's nobody, I don't know about you all, but there's nobody looking over my shoulder telling me, hey, you need to work on this thing. It's all up to you. So maybe we can actually develop those skills early. I feel like you just highlighted the master adaptive learner framework again, because it's just this whole process of reflection, critical thinking, reflection, critical thinking. And I, I think that there are periods in medical training where that is emphasized and that is we were asking people to cultivate it. And then there's other times where we, we just kind of say, go get them. We've already set up this system for you. And I think the more that we can allow people to be innovative and master adaptive learners, I think the more successful they will, hopefully they will be and the system will be. Yeah. And if, if people who are listening have never heard of the master adaptive learner framework, you should definitely go check it out. I absolutely love that framework. And actually we have a coaching program for our first year residents in internal medicine. Um, we've had it for a few years now, but in the past, the coaches served as almost like clinical coaches that would use our assessment data to try to help interns identify how they could improve better clinically and identify clinical improvement goals. This year, we just changed to our whole coaching framework is based on the master adaptive learner model. And we are trying to help people understand that kind of PDSA type of approach to being deliberate about your learning, but also being more reflective about those batteries that drive the learning process. What are they? Uh, the batteries are curiosity, uh, resilience, mindset, and I'm going to lose one of them. But these things like re- having people reflect, if you're having trouble being deliberate with your learning, is it because you're struggling with one aspect of that learning cycle? Or is it because there's something in those batteries that you're struggling with? Are you slipping away from growth mindset? Are you struggling with Um, personal resilience, which I want to put the flag up. Resiliency is not something that we should be waving our fingers at people for. It is a well-being and resilience is a systems issue, not a personal issue. But I do think there is a personal aspect of resilience too. You know, is it a motivation issue? And so helping people, my, my colleague, Matt Kelleher said it the best. The point of a coaching program is to help people not need a coaching program. And so we are trying to get people to be very deliberate and self-motivated about using a framework like the Master Adaptive Learner Framework to drive their own learning so that once they get out of residency and they're in a place like like us, um, they can do this on their own. And so I would think that would align really well with competency-based time variable training, where you are working toward defined competencies, defined goals, and there's also flexibility built in there for you to use that curiosity and use that growth mindset. I'm a bit obsessed with the Master Adaptive Learner Framework, so I appreciate your similar obsession, Ben, and the batteries that I quickly reminded myself of were curiosity, motivation, mindset, and resilience. And so I think I love that your residents, that residents are doing that, are being coaches around the Master Adaptive Learner Framework, because I think, again, it's kind of back to what you brought up earlier, which is the ownership around the process and the ownership around the educational journey. And I think you're really setting up the residents for that. Yeah. I um, <laughs> There's uh, one of the people who literally helped write the book on the Master Adaptive Learner Model, Dr. Sally Santin. She's an emergency medicine doctor. She recently joined University of Cincinnati about a year ago, and I totally fanboyed on her. I was really, <laughs> uh, I was going to a meeting, one of our regular education meetings, and somebody was like, oh, Sally Santin's joining us today. 
And I was like, what? Like the Sally Santon? They're like, oh yeah, she's in Cincinnati now. And I, like my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. And, um, you know, did you get her autograph? Uh, I haven't yet, but I, I did have Eric Holmbo sign one of my, uh, this book actually, this evaluation of clinical competence book that he helped write. I had him sign the inside cover here. You, your readers won't be able to see this, but <laughs> so I think, uh, Sally, if you're listening, I do need to have you sign my master adaptive learner book. So I love that you have it within reach. You're, you're ready to go. <laughs> if I, if I scanned my computer around, you would see the hot mess that my office is and it's just stacks <laughs> of random books. Oh, totally. Well, um, Ben, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of uh, your pearls and your approaches and defining and introducing us to time variable education. I wonder, do you have any main take-home points for our listeners? Yeah, I think the take-home points would be that competency-based medical education is all about serving our patients and that right now we are developing evidence that not everybody is getting where they need to be and that maybe we need to rethink our training models. And competency-based time variable training is one way to try to approach that. So um, if you're interested in this space, if you think you've got a robust assessment system, uh, you know, I would love to learn from you. Please reach out to me uh, via email or Twitter or however you want. And uh, I would love to hear what you're doing or share our ideas. I think the best way to move this conversation forward is to, to work together. Wonderful. And I know you you plugged a few books, and uh, including the Master Adaptive Learner, but I wonder if there's anything else that you would like to plug for the listeners. Um, the only other thing I would plug, if you're an education nerd and you would like some really great resources for quick reads, you should check out the ICE blog. I don't have any affiliation with it, um, but one of my colleagues is the editor for it, uh, Dr. Eric Warm. The web address is icenetblog dot royal college dot ca and it's really nice bite-sized blogs about really awesome educational stuff some of it really practical some of it getting more into the theory uh, a really wide range of interprofessional uh, education stuff so it's not just for physicians and i highly highly recommend it you can sign up for their newsletter you get a little email that'll tell you when something new is there and if you uh, have some ideas to share they are open for accepting submissions so it's a great place to get your ideas out too that's awesome, Ben. I, I heard it's international. Is that correct? Yep. I believe that's, that's what the uh, the I is for. ICE is International Clinician Educators, I think. That's wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible uh, hour, some time together. And Molly, did you have any other wrap-up points? No, I, I don't think so. This has just been great. And we really appreciate your time, Ben. And we're excited to share this. Great spending time with you. Thanks. So... Any take-homes that you have from this one, Ira? Yes. I think Ben has really uh, lit a fire for me in terms of thinking about the power of time variable training, the fact that this is both an innovative approach and one that is learner-driven, but takes into account what the health system needs as well. And I really loved his idea of, can we train 0.8 FTE residents, people who can guide their own training in the way that they feel like would let them be the best physician they can be. And also the power of the master adaptive learner framework, which I also have a mutual obsession for. Yeah, I, I think this is so exciting. It feels so challenging to think about really implementing into practice. And I just loved hearing about his 
uh, his experiences with really trying to make this work and what he's learning in the process and his open-mindedness to consider, you know, what can we take that's most valuable from this technique and what other techniques can we learn from? Because I think there is a lot we can do to improve medical education. And I like thinking about this big picture approach and really pushing us to to reconsider um, and not just stick with the model that we've used. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash curbsidersteach. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project, and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And I'm Ira Krzyzanowska. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.